and welcome back to Hey Look Listen, my name is Punished Venom Liam. Over the holidays it seemed to become increasingly difficult to get the whole band together to record an episode but we are on the cusp of doing that again and I'm super excited, I, I, it feels like it's been ages since I've recorded with the lads, we're, we're all very excited for it but for now I thought I'd just do a little buffer episode until we get to that episode with the three of us again. And seeing as it's a brand new year, what better thing to talk about than uh, the best games of last year? Have a little look back at some of my favourite games that came out, some of the best games I played. Terrible, shitty, no good year. Some fantastic games though. But of course, Hey Look Listen is a three-man outfit, so I want to make it clear that these are just my opinions. They're not representative of Hey Look Listen as an institution. This super serious concept of a best of year list of games, you know, the, the sanctity of that has to be respected. This is what I think are the best games that came out this year. Or should I say last year? But I wanted to get the lads involved, of course. I was like, I'm doing a list of my favourite games, but lads, I need your input. So I, I sent them both a message. I was like, Marcy, own. What do you think is your personal favourite best game of 2021? And they both messaged me back lickety split. And uh, so before I get to my list, I want to just read out what they wrote for like their favourite games. And I haven't read these messages yet. This is over. This is going to be a kind of a live on air. I'm going to experience it with you, the listeners. So and I'll begin with Marcy. Let's see what Marcy thinks is the best game of 2021. Okay, two seconds. Okay, just just going to open the message. Okay, Marcy wrote. My favourite game of 2021 was finally making that bastard pay for what he did. What the fuck does that mean? Um, okay, uh, Owen, I'll read what Owen, Owen wrote. Uh, my favourite game of the year was chess. Parentheses, especially the horses. These aren't their numbers. These aren't Marcianones. Who have I been texting? Sorry, I just I'm, I'm, I've been messaging them on WhatsApp, but uh, sometimes I get confused with technology. I I drink. I don't. Who have I been texting? This is not them. This is not their numbers. I don't know who sent these to me. I don't know what they mean. That's very concerning. But look, I'll press on. Um, just gonna put that phone down. Don't like that. So you might be seeing the title of this video and thinking, yeah, seven, that's a weird number. And yeah, I actually had a top ten list ready to go. And I just thought, you know, I'll whittle it down. There was ten games that I played this year that I I really, really liked. But I feel like if I just laser focus in on these seven games, I get to talk about seven games that I I truly thought were like exceptional, that were brilliant, that I can wholeheartedly recommend kind of without any caveats, just as examples of certain kinds of games, examples of gaming itself. With 10 for the first three, I'd be kind of, you know, one of them was going to be Ace Attorney Chronicles. I've talked about Ace Attorney before. It would just be going, look, I need you to play this cartoon lawyer game. But if I whittle it down to this seven games i think these are all brilliant and like i said i wholeheartedly recommend each of these seven games but i am just a regular joe schmuck i live at a house of wattle and daw i haven't played everything that's come out of this year i haven't played everything i wanted to play so there's definitely going to be some big games that aren't going to be on this list some big whoppers some big well-reviewed well-selling games that just aren't appearing on this in fact i might get some of those out of the way real quick just so i don't know people don't expect them games that won't be in my top seven that i feel were kind of big zeitgeist grabbing games of 2021 um halo infinite 
Deathloop, Returnal, Ratchet and Clank, Rift Apart, Death's Door. These are all games I'd love to play, but I absolutely haven't. Time, money, energy. These are things that trickle out of me on a constant basis. But yeah, I still think I have a really cool list. If your favourite game doesn't appear on this list, um, don't worry. That means that your opinion is bad and that you are a bad person. And all those things you've been worried about your parents thinking about you, they're all true. No, I just, I probably haven't played the game. Uh, that, that's all it is. But these are seven fantastic games. Like, you know, enough, enough nonsense. Let's go, let's go. Now, this list has appearances from some mega old decades-long franchises. It has uh, franchises that have disappeared for a long time that made their grand return in 2021. But to start this list, at number seven, I want to start in a much more humbler place. An adorable, delightful indie game called Chicory, A Colourful Tale. And I don't know, I guess I'd best describe this game as Zelda, but much more easygoing. It has the same kind of top-down perspective of an old-school classic Zelda game, except that it has this beautiful, cartoony art style. You play as a dog with a magic paintbrush, and you can paint the world as you see fit at any time. You can splash colour at anything. The world is vacant and white. The colour has been sucked out of the world. And the main mechanic of this game is that you have a magic paintbrush that you can paint the world with. And one of the first things, one of the most immediate things that endeared me towards this game was that at the beginning of the game, as you turn it on, it asks you what your favourite food is. Now, I played this game right before Christmas, so I very much had Christmas on my mind. So I played the game as a dog named Turkey. Because when it asks you what your favourite food is, it's actually asking you to name your character also. And, I don't know, that made me smile immediately. But I use the term easygoing, and I think that's what I'd, I'd zone in on. I, I have a list that I write for our Instagram called um, Good Gaming Yarns, which with the whole kind of function of, of that list of why I make it is I kind of want to recommend games that are kind of low effort for when you're in that kind of brain blah kind of mood and you just can't really life right now and you can't even game right now. I think there's, it, I think it's great to be able to play very chill, relaxing games and Chicory, A Colourful Tale absolutely falls into that category. There is some exploration, there is some puzzle solving, uh, all based around uh, your ability to paint things with your magical paintbrush. And it's all very clever, but it's all very kind of simple. You won't be stuck for long. And if you do get stuck, the game has like a, a very open hint system. You can literally have a hint towards a puzzle or you can um, have the game tell you exactly what to do. It's a game that doesn't want you to get stuck. It's a game that wants you to kind of, you know, relax in it, kind of just dwell in it and have a good time. What really struck me about this game, this is a game with the most cutesy of art styles, is that the that the writing and the storyline is actually shockingly good. And I love how it's merged with its main gameplay mechanic. This is a game about being creative. It's a game about creativity. It's a game that has you being creative for the, the entire playtime. Or, or it's a game that asks you to be creative. It asks you how to use this paintbrush. Not, not to solve its own puzzles even, but just how, how to splash colour onto this world. And that reflects the story, which is a story very much about creativity and creating art and all the kind of different facets of that. From the, the joy of it, from like the, the warmness of it, but also from like the anxiety it can induce, the pressure a gift can um, give someone, uh, the pressure that the kind of drive to be creative can actually give someone. And things like, you know, the burnout that comes from that. I thought it was a very nice story with very like well-written characters, very well-written dialogue that like resonated much more than I thought a little game about a cartoon dog named, in my case, a turkey, would resonate for me. 
Yeah, despite its kitty looks, this game has a lot more on its mind than honestly the vast majority of games. And I think, I think it's a game that would resonate with a lot of people. And I think it's a game. Look, look, we live in kind of the bad times, TM. I think this is a very nice, relaxing game. But I actually think, kind of on the other side of that coin, it's its story might be more hard hitting than a lot of people might expect. It it kind of kind of spoke to me in 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 ways I wasn't expecting, and I was very very moved by it. Um, I think it's probably. Not probably, it's easily one of the best stories of 2021, and I would say the seventh best game, in my opinion, of 2021. I really, really was just blown away by this game, and I wholeheartedly recommend it, even if you don't like games with this kind of art style. But if you don't like the cutely art styles, I say, I don't know, maybe play one. Or, you know, you know, play what you want. I, I, you know, gaming, gaming should be fun. And this is a very fun game. I loved it. Chicory. Delightful is the best word for it. Next up, number six, and I kind of really, for this list, didn't want to do any re-releases or remasters. If I was going to do that, I think uh, the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, the trilogy, that would be a highlight. The Skyward Sword re-release for the Switch, I will always stand up for a game despite its numerous problems. But I kind of slightly break that little self-imposed rule a little bit because I'm putting um, Bowser's Fury on this list. And Bowser's Fury is a new game. But it's, uh, it comes attached to a re-release of Super Mario 3D World, the, the former Wii U game. And this game came out in February, like ages ago. And I feel like it's kind of been forgotten. Like uh, this year feels longer than most. And it was one of the first things I think I talked about on this podcast. We began this podcast last February, which is crazy. And I remember talking about it in one of the episodes. Can't quite remember which one now. But it's kind of, yeah, like I said, I think it's been forgotten and I definitely don't want it to be forgotten because I actually think it's one of the best things Nintendo has done in years and definitely one of the best things they've done in 2021. 2021 has been a year that I haven't been super happy with Nintendo as a business, but that is not a list about that. But sometimes you have to stand back and just focus on the games and I really think, yeah, people have forgotten how good this thing was. It's a small game, purposefully, decidedly short, but it's also like, I think, the first open world Mario game. And that's such a strange experiment. And I think it pays off in spades. Having full exploration of this world with, um, you know, Mario's malleable acrobatics is, is such a joy. But also one of the keys, I think, is the way that Nintendo kind of kept it goal oriented and had the world slowly open to you. Not through unlocking skills all that much, you know, Mario begins the game and ends the game with with his same skills but the way it kind of keeps yeah like I said goal orientated so you just kind of work your way through this world bit by bit until eventually it's a huge open playground for you to explore and I honestly this is this game is is a tiny little less than 10 hour experience and I think it's much better than most open world games I've played in the last few years and much more kind of what I want to see from this genre kind of makes me inspired by the open world genre again and that's been a long time since that's happened I, I think it's kind of a genre that needs a kick up the arse at this point it's resting on too many laurels and the laurels are all very grey very dull game design choices one of the new central mechanics to this game is that Bowser has essentially become a kaiju and every now and then he, you can always see him sleeping on the map which is really cool visual you know no matter where you are in the world you can kind of see his gigantic shell on the horizon but every now and then he wakes up 
and you know fucks with the world essentially starts shooting fireballs and depending on what you're doing because this is kind of a randomized event depending on what you're doing this can kind of kind of sometimes get in your way it can be annoying if it happens at just the wrong time but i think by and large i kind of appreciate it as a mechanic i appreciate how it kind of forces you to kind of roll with that punch whenever it happens and there's really clever ways that nintendo came up with that you have to utilize bowser's fireballs you know you have to wait until the bowser's awake and you can actually make him break open things and manipulate the world and i think that's that there's a really cool sense of discovery that comes with that the bottom line i think this is like for some reason one of the games that's been slept on at this point from 2021 even though it's a nintendo game i feel like a lot of people have forgot about it and yeah like all re-releases um it's overpriced even though this is a brilliant fantastic add-on i wouldn't have sold this thing for 60 quid but if you haven't played super mario 3d world the game it comes with then i can't even imagine a better package than these two games together it's such a bargain these are two amazing games but i am not ranking super mario 3d world here that's an old game um number six bowser's fury uh one of the uh, like i might be one of the only people who thinks that no i'm definitely not but i think more people need to say it it's one of the best things nintendo has done in years and the popular consensus is that it's it's been a kind of a test run to do a much larger 3d mario open world and i think that's definitely what you're doing here and i think if that was what the experiment was it was like a grand success maybe super mario odyssey 2 will kind of you know take some of the lessons learned from bowser's fury and i would be delighted to see that number five is a game that i had been waiting for for years for years i tells you it's a game that has like a storied history it is a very late sequel to a cult classic from the early 2000s that didn't sell very well but you know, garnered a huge reputation, garnered a passionate fan base, and finally its sequel was announced many years ago. I think a third of it was crowdfunded, and as the sequel was being produced, it um the company, its parent company, it changed hands. There was all sorts of turmoil. So the fact that it finally came out in 2021, not only did it come out, it came out fully formed. Apparently, in, I was I was reading um interviews from the developers they had they they got to make the full game they imagined despite you know budget issues they got they had to make no concessions they got, got they managed to get the full game out all these years later and why haven't i said the title yet uh, number five is psychonauts 2 and for people who don't maybe not know psychonauts it's um the first one was about a, a little kid who is in a summer camp for psychics and some nefarious plot is going on in that summer camp and the central premise of the game is this this boy raz jumping into the brains of certain people and they act as like the the levels it's a it's a 3d platformer very much in the vein of the old like mario 64 or banjo kazooie or something like that but that uh, that central concept the fact that the levels themselves were based on uh, the inner psyches of people is a stroke of genius i think i've said this in the podcast before i think i was talking about psychonauts too i brought it up briefly at one point but the idea of taking a, a platform game or any kind of game and kind of turning its level into a kind of projection of a character is such, it's such a genius way to do shorthand storytelling through gameplay. Another series that does this very well is the Persona series, particularly Persona 5. But I just think that's like absolutely genius and it was a huge feather in um, Psychonauts 1's cap and it's an even bigger feather in Psychonauts 2's cap. And Psychonauts 2 is all around just a bigger better game than its predecessor it's exactly what they said it was going to be on the tin they just managed to release a sequel with a bigger story better graphics 
more modern sensibilities even though it is very much an old school feeling game it kind of in a lot of ways feels like it came from 2005 when the first one came out and that's kind of a blessing and a curse but i i found it was a warm blanket but the main focus i got to do was just writing this new bigger story and focusing on these new levels these new brains that you inhabit and there's some absolutely genius ones i wouldn't wouldn't dare spoil some of them but uh what's very clever about about it and what's much more ambitious this time around than the first game i would say is that playing these levels and kind of raz exploring these you know these projections of people's minds of their brains of their inner psyches he's actually dealing with a lot of pretty heavy issues and the game deals with a lot of heavy issues like uh, ptsd uh, addiction uh, drugs one level is just a whole fucking drug trip it's crazy and I've always said of Psychonauts 1 that it's sort of a janky platformer. Like these guys, um, it's made by Tim Schafer. And uh, he came from um, LucasArts. He came from making point-to-click adventure games like Monkey Island. The previous episode of Halo Listen is all about Monkey Island too. Please listen to that. But um, when they made Psychonauts 1 back in the day, they'd never made a platformer before. So me, little child boy who was, you know, a connoisseur of the genre. I always thought it was sort of a weak platformer. It was sort of janky. It was sort of awkward. But it was made up for tenfold by the sheer creativity while other platform games would have your snow level and your fire level and your forest level and, you know, levels you could, you could you know, rely on being the same and recycled, at least as recycled the ideas in, in different games. Psychonauts had all these genius ideas. And Psychonauts 2 just goes bigger at that. And it's just such a joy to play. But, in saying that, I still think it's sort of a janky platformer. Not as much as Psychonauts 1. I replayed Psychonauts 1 when I, before I played 2, and I was shocked at how sort of bad some of the gameplay was in that game. Uh, the story, the writing, the character is amazing, as always. Timeless. But Psychonauts 2 has a similar problem when it's, you know, this might be unfair to say, but in a world where, you know, Super Mario Odyssey exists, some of the platforming in this game was just a little rough by comparison and yeah that's a very unfair to compare them to nintendo but even i would compare them to old platformers that came out 20 years ago and psychonauts still doesn't play as good as those games but exact same situation as the first game it makes up for it tenfold and just uh, this one has a better story it's bigger if you if you're in love with the the lore and the mythos of mythos of psychonauts there's just loads of it in this game and it might be really weird and slightly condescending to say, but I'm just so proud of this uh, this company, Double Fine, and Tim Schafer and this team. I just think they managed to make a great product. And, like, we were living for years in a world where there never be a Psychonaut sequel. So to not only get one, but to get one that absolutely knocked it out of the park. It's such a joy. And I'm glad. I don't, I don't know how it's doing sales-wise, but it's getting a ton of recognition. And it warms the cockles of my heart. Psychonauts 1 is... An absolute must play and Psychonauts 2 even more so please support this game if it sounds interesting to you in any way it is absolutely fantastic. Number four and I'm going to preface this for a second by kind of revealing that it's another 3D platformer and I just want to say how happy that makes me personally. 3D platforming games they kind of I don't know disappeared fell out of vogue fell out of popularity when the, the rise of the indie scene and the indie games absolutely brought back the 2D platformer uh, and then the kind of people making games online themselves into 2000, you couldn't move for homemade 2D platform games. But these 3D platforms were incredibly popular in the kind of PlayStation N64 going up into the PlayStation 2 GameCube kind of era 
and then they just used to seeing less and less of them and I always loved them and I always loved what kind of gameplay could be wrung out of them exploration and that kind of world building and traversal and I always thought they were just great receptacles if you will for fantastic gameplay and I've always had a huge soft spot for them I always have always will probably I might change my mind but yeah it's so nice to be able to say that 2021 was just this great year for 3D platformers because you know Mario never went away which is kind of you know the one constant you always got Mario but even outside of Bowser's Fury this year like I said we had um, Psychonauts 2 and I didn't even play the Ratchet and Clank game but that's another example but most importantly my number four game it takes two and honestly I'm sort of shocked that I'm at a position now at the end of the year at the beginning of the next year that I'm putting this game this high on the list because when I sat down to play it all those months ago I was not expecting it to be like my preferred game over like my long anticipated Psychonauts 2 game not that I should be comparing these two games all that much but and what I'm trying to say is this game took me by complete surprise. It is a co-op, multiplayer-only 3D platform game about uh, divorce or just about relationships in general. Yeah, in this game you play as a divorcing couple who get turned into dolls and have to go on a series of adventures in order to transform back into their original form and maybe along the way reconnect with their daughter. To be honest, at first I found this whole... The whole plotline, the whole vibe of the game, incredibly cloying. I wasn't on board when I got into it, but I was shocked to discover as I played the game how much genuine earned sentiment it ringed out of me. How kind of well-measured its writing is. It's very much a kind of a, a Disney-feeling type thing. It's not hard-hitting, but it was actually very, you know, not moving, but just... Yeah, just not vapid. It had something to say and it said it well. And I think a big part of that might have been that I played it with my girlfriend and I'm really glad I did. A, because it is a game about couples. It's a game about relationships. And I think that I, I recommend playing it with your significant other if you can, because um, and it can be a very interesting experience and you do kind of um, maybe get into little mini arguments like the main characters are doing and maybe it'll make you reflect on your own relationships. But B, I'm glad I played with her because this is genuinely one of my favourite co-op games I've ever played. And genuinely, to want to get all, you know, mushy and weird, I'm just really glad I shared that with her. This was like a, a game I truly loved and I have really nice memories of playing it with her. Even now, months later, it's already this core nice memory of 2021. But fucking whatever about her, it's just a genuinely brilliant game. It's a genuinely well-made game. And I couldn't be more pleased to say that. And I couldn't be more surprised to say that. And this grants me another example on this list to just take a tiny little shade on open world games. Because another type of game I've always advocated for is a linear game. A game that has you on a set path from point A to point B to point C for the entire game. And I don't think every game should be linear. That's not what I want at all. I just think it's kind of come to the point where open world games, despite their name, despite what they advertise themselves as being, despite their very nature, have just become incredibly restrictive. Despite how open they are, I would say about 80% of them kind of boil down to five things you can do in this massive open world and a bunch of time wasting in between. And I love how a linear game can just move you from set piece to set piece, from mechanic to idea, and it takes two. 
has such a wealth of ideas. It has ideas and mechanics that it uses for half an hour's breath, things that could fill an entire game or could fill hours worth of game that they discard and move on to the next thing. And I was shocked at how long the game kept going on and how they kept throwing new ideas, new worlds, new places, new mechanics, uh, just absolutely fantastic, surprisingly long Moorish stuff. And honestly, that's my main takeaway from this game, just how fun it is because of just a variety of gameplay in it and how it just moves from idea to idea. It's such a good, good pace. It's a very, very well-paced game. And as a co-op game, you know, very simple kind of lesson to make a, a good co-op game of this nature is that, you know, each player always has a different ability, has a different task, has a different kind of responsibility for this part of the game. So you end up kind of, you know, having kind of different experiences and uh, like I said, different responsibilities and you're helping each other and that can kind of lead to frustrations and confusion that can but it can also lead to amazing moments and amazing teamwork. But again, just to like drive home the point, the amount of these new ideas that the game kind of rattles through as it goes on, the amount of, you know, different kind of responsibilities each player will be taking up and new mechanics. And more so than anything else, I think I'm repeating myself, but more so than anything else, I just love the wealth of creativity from this game. And I'm delighted it, it won the Jeff Keighley Award for Excellence, aka the Game Awards this year for uh, Game of the Year, which everyone was shocked by. And, you know, I think it's an absolute worthy winner. And I don't know if... Have we come to the point where this award is like super important? Is it like the Oscars of, of games? But I just think I'm glad to see a game of this nature, a game that plays this way, a game that has this kind of philosophy behind its design, get such a prestigious award, if, if, if prestigious it truly is, because I would like to see a lot of the mentalities come back into popularity that, um, that this game has going for it. And yeah, no, nothing really... As to say, it's one of my kind of fondest moments of um, a really, really not great year. And I think it's an absolute delightful game. And actually, one more thing. It did not sell for full price, which is crazy. This game, I absolutely would have bought this game for a full price. It's an absolute bargain for how good the game is, for how long the game is. Just the sheer quality of the game. Um, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant game. And moving right along to number three in what was easily one of my most anticipated games of the year. And a game that didn't... Oh god, hold on. Oh, those numbers just messaged me. Those numbers I thought were Marcy and Owen just messaged me, both of them. Okay. Um, okay, no, I'll, I'll read that. I told you what my favourite game of the year was, but I didn't tell you what my least favourite game of 2021 was. My least favourite game of 2021 was the fact that I couldn't save her. What the fuck? That's what the one I thought was Morrissey said. Um, I might as well read the other. Um, the other said, uh, most surprisingly decent game of the year, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I totally agree with that one. Uh, it's not on this list. I don't have it on this list, but I, I was ready to hate that game and I actually thought that was really good, especially how... Marvel's Avengers game was such a heap of shit. I thought that was a yeah, surprisingly good game. Um yeah, that that was an okay text to get. Don't like that I don't know who these people are, but that one was okay. Right. One out of two ain't bad. 
<laughs> when I keep going with the list now. My third favourite game of the year, and I think I, I'd like to put a little distinction here, a little kind of line in the sand, that I like all seven of these games, but these top three are the games of, from this year that I really, really loved. Some of my all-time favourites, I would say. And it is a Metroid Dread. And look, I'm a massive fan of this series, and uh, it's kind of confusing because there's all these different Metroid games. There's the Metroid Main series, and there's Metroid Prime, and yada yada. But bottom line, this was a game about 18, 19 years coming. It's a direct sequel to the Game Boy Advance's Metroid Fusion, which came out in like 2001, 2002. And even beyond that, back in the DS era, there was all these rumors online and in magazines that Nintendo were working on. A Metroid game called Metroid Dread and it just became this cryptid of video games spotted in the woods in a blurry photograph never manifest fully until yeah finally 2021 we got the long-awaited Metroid Dread and yeah honestly I'm so passionate about the genre that this comes from the clumsily awkwardly terribly named Metroidvania genre that I I could just break away from hey look listen and just spend all the rest of my year is just doing a podcast about Metroidvanias and how to design a Metroidvania game. Even if even if it's just me talking to the wind, I would love doing that because I love this genre. I have so many, so many uh, ideas and notions about what makes these games good and how to make a good one. So, bottom line, is Metroid Dread a good Metroidvania game? It absolutely is. It's a fantastic Metroidvania game. And it does this by very much marrying old school sensibilities but kind of um, new sensibilities from my modern gaming. And Metroidvania games are defined by being non-linear, they're, they're big maps that you have to unfurl and kind of suss out and explore and one of the kind of dirty words often associated with them is backtracking. People often think, oh Metroidvania games just have so much pointless backtracking but no if it's done well it's all meaningful backtracking because exploring and figuring things out through level design is so rewarding when it's done well in the metroidvania genre is the is the king of this kind of stuff it's why i it's why i love resident evil games the old ones and it's why i love uh zelda dungeons uh, the dungeons and zelda games it's all cut from the same cloth so i have such big whammer slammers of opinions about metroid dread and how it handles its exploration because one of the big no-nos from some previous Metroid games, namely Metroid Fusion and Metroid Zero Mission uh, for the Game Boy Advance, and these are two fantastic games that I both love for a variety of different reasons. But they are quite sacrilegious in the way that they literally put a dot on your map, have a character in the game, or say, hey, this is where you're supposed to be going. Follow this dot. This is this is your marker. Well, we don't. You don't need to think. And that's like a huge no-no for the genre, at least I consider it to be previous Super Nintendo Metro game, Super Metroid, had none of this. It was all about exploration and figuring things out, and that could lead you into roadblocks sometimes. Maybe sometimes it was too obtuse for its own good, but on by and large I found that game I find that game just invigorating to play, just so satisfying to suss out. And Metroid Dread, thankfully, does not at any point in the game have a dot on the map saying, go here. Hey, player Make Samus go here now, please. However, it is still a game in which it's very difficult to get lost and get stuck. And and the developers hold your hand like a ghost and lead you through this game. And before I kind of land on whether I think this is a good thing or a bad thing, I have to state that the way they do this, the way that they don't put a dot on the map, yet they lead you through this game, that they prevent you from getting lost, or at least make it very hard to get lost, is some genuine 
top tier genius game design or genius level design it's absolutely fantastic it has to be stated this game wasn't made in-house by nintendo it's the second metro game to be made by a spanish company called mercury steam and i just have to commend them for some of the genius design uh, that they put into this game in this aspect of it and the player is constantly orientated in simple ways in in kind of the way the level design loops around itself the way when you get a certain item it kind of funnels you to the direct place where you need to use that item be it to open a door or to make a new passageway or whatever or samus can now jump higher or it might have you do a big chunk of an area of the game and fight a boss and then it will lead you directly to like an elevator that leads to a different area of the game or maybe a previous area of the game because this game really doesn't feel linear there's a bunch of different sections which are each big elaborate maps and you go from one to the other and one to the other and back to one and back to another and you're all you're jumping all over the place for this entire game so it feels incredibly non-linear but like i said the ghostly hand of mercury steam is leading you through it and it's uh, just to say it again they need to be commended it's such good stuff but i would like to get lost more and i think that's a strange thing to say maybe for some people and that's the thing about games in general just that's the thing about this genre is that different people enjoy these things for different reasons and if i'm getting into a game with a big series of interconnected maps i would like a little more agency in figuring out how to explore this map how to work it all out like a big elaborate puzzle and i think metroid dread is just a little bit too handholdy for its own good for me even though the hand you, you you don't notice the hand but you do i did and i was kind of torn on this after i played it i was kind of a little bit disappointed by it because i you know i hate to pick it up because a lot of people bring up this game when talking about any metroidvania game but hollow knight uh, a game that came out a few years ago remains just at the perfect example for me of how to do this genre well and its shadow kind of looms over every metroidvania game i've played since because Playing Hollow Knight was just one of those amazing moments of just seeing a genre I adore from my childhood or from whatever, just seeing it perfected. And I think exploration in Hollow Knight is done so much better. It kind of conjures up curiosity in you. It leaves breadcrumbs so you explore and you kind of exploring off the beaten track it is kind of rewarded and you can open the world up in ways that you didn't expect. And it's, for me, a better way to do one of these games than what, what the amazing developers of Metroid Dreaded, as amazing as their work is. It's just that for me, it's a little more, I don't know, artful, a little bit more high class, but I still have Metro Dread as number three, of course. I feel like I've just been badmouthing the whole time because despite this, what I've landed on after playing this game, and I'm actually dying to play it again, I've only played it once, and I, I don't know why I haven't picked it up and played it again, is that despite my concerns about its kind of handholdiness or whatever, they've made a game that is just so incredibly fun and so incredibly well designed. The fact that they just pull you through it just means that it's so difficult to put down and add to the fact that the gameplay the controls the boss fights the atmosphere the music everything is just so top-notch i love the way samus is animated in this game even this is just it just feels like playing like a modern metro game and we never thought we might not get to ever play one of these and it just feels so good and yeah i've kind of landed on the fact that yeah this might not be my ideal way to make a metroidvania game to make a metroid game but it's still so impressive, so commendable, and so just straight up just fun to play. And I think I'm so biased towards this franchise. I've been playing it since my childhood. I adore it, and I, it kind of comes and goes, so it always feels like such a kind of a treat when a new Metroid game comes out. But I'm so biased towards it that I think 
a Metroid game, even on a kind of a maybe not the best day, is better than like 90% of games ever made. It's just a type of genre I prefer over most games. I think there's a reason why the Metroid series has been so inspiring to so many developers over the years. And I think Metroid Dread, despite my concerns, is one of the best Metroid games. And that's that's where I've landed. That's where I've landed. I have problems with it, but I had such fun playing it. Maybe in a year's time, I'll have ruminated on it more and I'll have different opinions about it. But for now, I'm just, I just can't wait to play it again. I absolutely loved it. Number two, my silver medal goes to a fascinating indie game called Inscription. And that's Inscription with the word crypt in the middle of it. It's a fun pun. And this is a game that I was well out of my comfort zone playing. I was messing with genres that I usually don't dip my toe into, usually just not really my thing. First and foremost, it's like a card game. It's a deck building game. And I, I fucked around with cards in the past. You know, in real life, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, slung a card or two that has like a picture of a funny animal in it or something like that. Back when I, you know, lived nearer friends who had these things available. I used to love uh, a night drinking or not playing some wacky old card game. Never fucked around with Magic the Gathering or anything like that. But I'm digressing way too much. This is a, a a deck building game where you 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 have to play an elaborate card game, but it also has a roguelike qualities, which means you know you progress and progress until you are defeated. At which point you're thrust back to the beginning of the game, armed with you know the skills you might or the lessons you might have learned along the way, or perhaps more um, in-game you know real things that you've been gifted. Anyway, bottom line is not really my genre, but I was um very compelled to play this game. And what I need to say is, this is a game that, you know, I can't talk about in too much detail because it's a game that absolutely should not be spoiled too much. Um, the main kind of genius of this game is going in and knowing as little as possible and kind of being taken along for the ride. There was an interesting debate a couple of years ago, or an interesting bit of discourse about uh, the nature of um, games and kind of, you know, not advertising exactly what they are. And a lot of this came up in the debate about The Last of Us 2, how The Last of Us 2 had a, you know, big story moments and big game changers in the story that, you know, was not advertised. And a lot of people felt cheated that they, it, it wasn't really quite the game they thought they were buying because of this. And there was um, controversy with journalists as well who had to sign waivers or whatever, but they, they weren't allowed to kind of in the reviews tell people, tell consumers of these, of these twists, of these, uh, of these differences that weren't advertised. And I kind of get the debate from that side where kind of a lot of journalists were pissed off that they, they didn't kind of get to critique the game in maybe the full way they wanted because they weren't able to talk about certain aspects of it. And I absolutely get that. But I just think too much of the gaming industry at, at this day and age is just too kind of homogenous and grey and samey. And I think real surprise is a good thing. And, you know, I, I completely agree with a lot of, you know, the very valid debates that came up over this issue, but I think I still land on in my heart that um, surprise is just in short supply in the gaming industry, very much so. And so if a game can really throw you for a loop and kind of become something else and, you know, turn into something it didn't quite seem at the beginning, that's always such a joyous thing for me. If done well, obviously this is something a game can fumble. And yeah, bottom line, that is what Inscription is. I am going to talk about this game for only a little bit because I wouldn't dare talk about it anymore. All I'll say is it's my second favourite game of the year. I wholeheartedly recommend it. Even if, like me, it doesn't look like the genre you would enjoy. This is not my genre at all. I loved this game. But I will talk about the initial kind of wrinkle with it, the, the really kind of clever aspect of this game, is that 
you are kind of sitting opposite a table with this mysterious figure whose only eye is glowing in the dark and you have to play this game with him. And, you, and he teaches you the rules and it's just it's this card game called Inscription. And I loved this card game. I ended up really falling in love with it. I loved learning all the elaborate, arbitrary rules of it. I just thought it was a super fun game to play. I would buy this game physically if it existed and play it with friends. I just really got involved with it. I really enjoyed it. But that is not the only thing that this game has going on. Because in between matches with this mysterious figure, you're able to stand up from the table you're playing at and explore this mysterious cabin you're in and there's uh, items to examine and puzzles to solve so that's what the nature of this game the nature of this game is yes playing this card game with this guy and actually trying to work your way fight your way card battle your way across a map and you know beat bosses and get to the very end and you got to do it in one go without being defeated but not only are you doing that there's a mystery to be solved within the cabin you're in so it's kind of a deck building card game yes but it's also it's completely story driven there's a story going on and it's like the card game is at the center of this narrative driven puzzle game which is super interesting and i'd never heard of anything like that before which is what kind of drew me to play this game despite my reservations about it and yeah look i don't want to spoil too much i'll only say that there is much more to this game than that and if someone was to not like this game or have a major problem with it perhaps and I'll, I'll dip my toe into the tiniest bit of spoiler territory even though i said I, I i wouldn't i think the reason would be that if someone fell in love with the game fell in love with this card game uh the setting this whole idea it's kind of yanked away from you and that's all i'll say oh my god oh my god and of course there's also the argument that you know this card game is so good that why not just make a game about this card? And I, I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that the rest of this game, with all its uh, bizarre uh, narrative ambitions, might get in the way of um, the central card game. And maybe people would enjoy a game more kind of, you know, um, common for the deck building card game genre, like Attack the Spire or something like that. But I think that really is how this game kind of strikes gold and becomes this unique thing that it does balance all these different ideas and different genres it balances more genres than i will dare to say in this review my number one game on this list is from a franchise that i've loved for the majority of my life so you know i wasn't surprised that i loved it which is why i gotta give inscription a kind of um an honorary award you know it's my number two game of the year but this was kind of you know the biggest surprise the biggest out of nowhere game just the biggest kind of experiment i'm so glad i kind of decided to play this i found it completely unique and fresh and look and look i've listed seven games that i think are completely amazing and fresh and unique this year but uh, i think inscription even more so than that is just in this age of video games it's such a, a breath of creativity and it might not land with some people but uh, that that's got to be the way it is with games like this that take such wide swings to try to be different and weird and its story i'm not going to say I'm, I'm obsessed with its story or obsessed with its lore but the way it kind of it's played out in this truly unique way. It's constantly intriguing and fascinating. And I literally was just kind of captivated through my um, play of this game. And I couldn't re recommend it more. It's, uh, yeah, the honorary award Liam Sheehan's most surprising, fascinating, captivating game of 2021. But it doesn't have big tits vampire ladies in it, does it? That's why it's not number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My number one game of 2021 favorite game i played is resident evil village and honestly i kind of love the position with its 
within its own franchise that kind of Resident Evil Village has come to inhabit. I kind of love that this game isn't universally adored. Uh, that's not to say there's much negative. I don't think you find much negativity towards it, but it's not like a Zelda Breath of the Wild, where Zelda Breath of the Wild came out and was so universally adored that I think a lot of people were almost kind of annoyed by it immediately. Resident Evil Village is liked a lot by a lot of Resident Evil fans. There's a gamut of emotions that I'm finding online that people feel about this game, ranging from, yeah, it's one of the good ones, to it's one of the best ones, to it's a freaking masterpiece of game design. And what that really says to me is that Resident Evil, of all franchises, has really managed to make itself this varied franchise. Because back in the day, like Resident Evil was the poster child for a franchise stuck in its way, a kind of archaic game series that kind of refused to evolve or change with the times. That all changed with Resident Evil 4, and now it's kind of this franchise that every few years kind of reinvents itself, and it has kind of... um upward momentum and it has really big low points you know but uh, you know but that means that i kind of different people can have their different favorite kind of era or chapter of resident evil and i think resident evil village which is resident evil 8 i don't think it's a big shocking change to the franchise as some previous games that only came out a few years ago namely resident evil 7 i think resident evil 7 was a bigger revolution and evolution for this franchise and i think the remake of resident evil 2 was this more kind of exciting refinement of the franchise and exciting reinvention or recalibration of the kind of Resident Evil model. And I think Resident Evil 7 and Resident Evil 2 Remake both have higher high points than Resident Evil 8. I think some of my um, favorite gaming memories of the last five years have been from the first halves of Resident Evil 7 and Resident Evil 2, the police precinct in Resident Evil 2, the Baker House in Resident Evil 7. These are like our amazing gaming locations with some just fantastic all-time great gameplay but i'm also of the opinion that both these games drop off quality wise at some point about halfway through in both and neither of them drop off all that far but it's still a drop off and i think you know put simply and you know put quite basically that is my one of my main things about resident evil village where it doesn't have that drop off it is consistently fantastic the whole way through and other than that i think your mileage will vary with this game depending on your preference for your Resident Evil or your survival horror games and I think this is just a great marriage between different types of Resident Evil games. I think the, the simplest way to say it is that it's like Resident Evil 1 combined with Resident Evil 4. It's the goofy gothic horror of Resident Evil 4 that kind of leans more towards action than horror mixed with the kind of less linear more open-ended classic resident evil level design and just with a style and tone that yeah is kind of based off resident evil 4 but it's so batshit and its own thing it's kind of like their developers thinking we've done zombies zombies are our main thing how about we do all the other archetypes i want vampires in this i want werewolves in this i want frankensteins in this and it's such an infectiously goofy take on horror that's not really as scary as it is just completely memorable and madcap and delightful I love its whole vibe, I love its whole atmosphere. I love how it just feels like a, a series of disparate ideas mashed together, like that there's just these different bosses that you gotta get to and they're all like, it's almost like they got different people working at Capcom to just go, all right, I'm not, I'm not, you're gonna lock you in different rooms, you can't talk to each other, design four different bosses to fight over the course of Resident Evil 8 that the players will have to, you know, get to, and you won't be able to communicate, so they're all gonna be completely different. One is gonna be a big tit vampire lady, 
one is going to be a man who can control metal one is going to be a living doll or whatever just fucking design and we we love you come on we love you you're our designers you're you're great people and i love that energy because it's a choice and i love it just as much as the more grounded textures horror of resident evil 7 because that's also a choice you know i don't really have a preference of one or the other i just like that capcom are making these big deliberate choices that i just feel very different than what's come before it i think resident evil is in kind of a new golden age at the moment and i think it's um been in that since resident evil 7 came out in 2016 and i think the worst game to come out in this era is the resident evil 3 remake which by all standards is still a pretty good game but i think one of the reasons you know there's a few reasons but i think one of the reasons why it kind of doesn't stand out as well as the other modern ones is because it's the only one that doesn't feel fresh and different for a series that's been releasing games in relatively quick succession i think it's amazing how different resident evil 7 resident evil 2 remake and resident evil 8 feel from each other and i just like i said a player preference you know matters in this regard and that that's why resident evil 8 is just my favorite one i just love the cartooniness of it i love the the big wide weird swings it takes I love the titular village itself and how you're, it's the centerpiece of the whole game and how it slowly opens up as you progress through the game and you create shortcuts through it and you and you learn more of its secrets. I love its boss fights. I love the, the big ones like those four bosses I mentioned, but I also love the ones you just stumble upon. This game loves having you wander into a new area or return to an old area and suddenly there's a new big fuck-off wolf or something waiting for you and it's absolutely riveting and you just have to roll with these punches and react and that's what this game might not be scary in the traditional sense but it's absolutely tense like that and you're constantly on edge because these things have been thrown at you it's just a roller coaster of a game and i think the main reason why it's my number one and why i like i as much as i loved inscription and metroid and all the other games i just have such fondness of uh, my memories of playing it are already just so fond I, I had such a good time with it and I think Resident Evil has always been a silly series sometimes intentional and sometimes not and I think this is one of the great cases where it absolutely leaned into it intentionally and it works gangbusters for me it's just a really funny weird game aesthetically and just a brilliantly designed survival horror com action game you know gameplay wise and that's just an potent mixture for me and quite comfortably my game of 2021 and that's that all around i think a very good year for gaming and i hope you enjoyed listening to me rattle on about a few good games there but i oh, oh here oh look i'll just finish the episode and then i'll, I'll check that text i i don't like it i don't like it but thank you so much for listening to Hey Look Listen. Please, if you enjoy this podcast, share with some friends. That would be so delightful. Maybe follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All that good stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. Now let's check that text. Oh, he sent me a picture of myself dead. Oh, I hate Mondays.